Education Podcast listeners. This is Kevin Eva, the editor-in-chief of the journal, reaching today over the pond. I'm actually you know, back home in Hamilton, Ontario, and I have the pleasure of speaking with Andrew Maudsley, who's at the University of Manchester. Andrew's a pharmacist by background and director of education in the School of Health Sciences. And I reached out because I wanted to have a chance to talk about a paper that he's coming out in the June 2023 issue of medical education entitled Hetero and Cisnormativity, UK Pharmacy Education as a Queer Opponent. Andrew, you've been traveling yourself, and so I understand it's been a late night and a long day, but we'll both try to get through this without too much pain for you. Thanks for joining me. Thank you for inviting me, Kevin. I really, I really appreciate it. I'm eager and thrilled that you were able to join because the topic is so clearly important. Again, just going to the title, heterosis normativity, gives people a pretty clear sense of what we're going to focus upon. But I imagine many won't know what queer pedagogy is in any sort of detail. You've applied it as a lens to try to understand what's happening in the educational environment in which you work. And I wonder if I can just start by asking you to tell our listeners what is queer pedagogy and why did it seem like the critical focus for you with this project? Queer pedagogy really is a branch of critical theory, really, as applied to education. And I thought it was an appropriate lens to use because what the lens positions is that we live in a construct which is hetero and cisnormative. And actually, you need to acknowledge some of that to really dismantle and understand how that plays out in teaching and learning. So it was a particular stance to take because otherwise I was in fear of not really getting to the root of the problem. Because actually what I'm writing about, Kevin, is, is not new. I think people have written about this before, but I mean, the UK isn't so bad, but you hear a lot of stories about legislative change worldwide, which is mm -hmm. acting to kind of further reduce the rights of queer people. So it's quite timely, actually. That's not why I did the paper, but it felt like the right approach to take in terms of the research so that we were acknowledging the world we live in in its kind of analysis. And when you mentioned problem, even without the legislative issues that are occurring in the States and elsewhere, there presumably was something that you were observing in your curriculum, in your profession, in your country that led you to think this required a look beyond what has been said on the topic before. And what was the particular question you were trying to address and why? So I guess in my own practice in UK pharmacy education, there was a recent curricular standards were kind of reviewed and rewritten. And again, you know, I always find that these standards quite vague when it comes to certain issues, particularly around inclusion and diversity. So it's very much around your legal kind of expectations as a practitioner in regard to treating or, or caring for patients from diverse backgrounds. But it doesn't really address the fundamental issues, which are that curricula, if you use a kind of queer pedagogic lens, that we enact these curricula in heteronormative, cisnormative spaces, which is higher education. So in my particular practice, it bothered me for a number of years that when we teach, if we teach about people that aren't straight or cisgendered, it's very much tied to those old stereotypes of HIV or trans people be around hormones or mental health. But that wider acknowledgement that actually 
queer people just live <laughs> alongside the rest of us. It was the way we teach. I wondered whether it was something I was seeing locally in, in my particular uh, university or it was wider in terms of pharmacy education. And, you know, reading around the literature, it still perpetuates in medicine and in nursing, even though they've tried to really address the issue through curricular design or through accreditation standards. And it just, I guess it played in my mind. It bothered me that I could see that in my own teaching institution. I wondered whether that was a product of pharmacy education itself more broadly. And actually, Manchester is a very diverse city in the UK. So what I was seeing was that our teaching wasn't necessarily reflecting the city in which we teach and therefore the students and the community around us. It's a kind of document or systematically indicate how that normativity is treated as normal, how everything else is treated as a deviation from normal is complex and challenging. And with this paper, one of the things that was impressive was you came at it from a couple of different angles. How did you try to constrain your focus or set a particular path that would allow you to do the analysis that you were seeking? We use a tool which had been used in medical education. And it was quite a quantitative tool, and it was looking at the types of education, which include queer people, the volume of that education, how it existed. Was it present in things like intended learning outcomes and in assessment methods? But really, I'm more of a qualitative researcher. It was using questions within that survey to get a richer understanding from the participants. So I guess what I was trying to achieve was a UK-wide stance. I wanted every a HI that teaches pharmacy to respond. And I wanted as many students to also respond to unpick that hidden curriculum idea. Really. So what are students feeling from what we're doing to them as educators? And it's quite interesting to me, you know, students would say to me, if there's something in a case study that's not like normal, that guides my thinking around what the answer should be. So if a student said a clinical case study, and it happens to be, I don't know, a lesbian couple, then the answer must be around the fact they're a lesbian couple, which just reinforced to me that we've not normalised. Well, and that normalisation comes up even in your results. You describe how education acts to normalise and legitimise hetero and cis identities within curriculum design. And you compare it with the lived experience that learners are describing. Were there other examples of things that led you to that claim? What sort of things did you see either in the form of curriculum or in their descriptions of their lived experience that continue to reinforce what you just said? Yeah, in the title, I use the word opposition, and I use that on purpose, and obviously it was led by the results, in that I asked particular questions. In addition to the questions that had already been asked in the tool that I adopted, I asked particular questions. So, do you think your curriculum is an ally of LGBT people? Do you think your curriculum is heteronormative in design? Do you think your curriculum is cis-normative in design? And overwhelmingly, the answer was, no, I don't think we're an ally. And yes, I do think it's heteronormative and cisnormative. And that's really interesting to me, because if you willingly or knowingly operate a curriculum in that way, then you fundamentally are in opposition, because you know what you're doing is othering LGBTQ people. So I was glad that people were so honest in their responses because it means that we can conclude that curriculum operate in a way that is oppressive knowingly and 
we need to do something with that knowledge, really. So they were honest. So they acknowledged that. Did they express distress, misgivings, plans to change? Yeah. Were you walking away feeling like this might it, have alerted them to? I think it was interesting because contextually in the UK, we've just undergone, like I said before, curriculum redesigned. So the GP, the General Pharmaceutical Society, which governs the educational standards of pharmacy course in the UK, have, have reissued the curriculum. So all pharmacy courses are changing to be able to be accredited against that curriculum. So the sense I got from participants was, well, we'll change when the new standards come in, because of course the new standards are going to be a magic wand and change everything. So we will change when it's necessary kind of to change, which, I mean, dissecting the standards, I don't think they would particularly drive any change, but that was interesting to me. And really the student sentiment was, was quite angry, actually. Some of the quotes, some of the things that students wrote were quite a hard read, really, in terms of there's a complete absence of people that aren't straight. And actually, I'm not prepared at the point of graduation to, am I prepared to practice pharmacy? Because I'm not sure I'd know how to care for a huge subsection of the population, which is, again, is quite a worry for me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, and uh, just perseverating a little bit on the example you gave with that lesbian couple and in a variety of other places I've seen where they've tried to make an effort at revising their curriculum. And some have done it by just removing reference to sexuality or to other demographic variables that just aren't necessary as part of the case. You just highlighted an example where it was in there, but in a way that seemed to reinforce discriminating tendencies. How do you find the balance? Where do you yeah. uh, suggest we sort of lead with that curriculum design, hoping that it does come? It's interesting, isn't it? Because on the face of it, those types of things would be seen as inclusive. But actually, if it's not supported by an education, so those students haven't had an education which is particularly inclusive. In my mind, and the paper kind of concludes, that all this kind of tokenistic way of throwing in inclusivity for the sake of inclusivity just acts to further other people which aren't heterosexual or cisgendered. So really it was around how do we challenge educators or students themselves to think about the fact that they might be living and studying within this kind of heteronormative structure and do we offer students or colleagues the tools to be able to disrupt that so that the teaching and their learning is ultimately more open so these things aren't tokenistic they're not just plugged in so a lot of the respondents you know they did acknowledge that they there was a severe lack of any kind of teaching in that area even to the point of you know sexual history taking or asking patients around the gender you know there's a lot of programs that didn't particularly do that what the paper, I guess, tried to act to do was offer other educators a method to think about their own teaching and their own programs and maybe apply some of that kind of critical eye to it to better understand what it is that we are doing as educators and how that is felt by students. So I don't, I'm not sure if I can conclude the answers, but I do think the paper uses a method which could be useful for other educators that are thinking about how the curriculum operates. Mm -hmm.
And that largely answers what was going to be my last question of where do you suggest that somebody starts to make change for the better? And so I appreciate that you said that this paper serves as a model for people to engage in that sort of interrogation. Is there anything else you would want people to keep in mind at the outset as they start moving that direction? Yeah, I mean, it's certainly the case in the UK and I imagine elsewhere that there is still a huge health inequality between straight and gay people. So that still exists. And access to care and how people are treated within health systems, there is a disparity. So if there is nothing else to kind of spark people to think about this issue, it would be that, you know, we're graduating healthcare professionals into a health system, which isn't perfect yet. And actually, maybe our graduates aren't prepared to challenge and support the change in terms of that health inequality. So I think that's a good starting point to come from. Yeah, and I'd certainly encourage people to read beyond the particulars of the context you said in the title, UK Pharmacy Education, but undoubtedly you've seen similar things in other professionals within the UK, and I've certainly seen similar things in places outside the UK. So using this as a, an important reminder to keep digging and look at where those barriers might lie seems like a critical take-home message. Yeah, I think if you know something is still a problem, years after it was raised as being a problem and other people have published and it's still established it's a problem. I think there's merit in continually thinking about the problem and maybe in different ways to ultimately, you know, hopefully combat it because politically and socially, you know, the world still does grapple, I think, with some of these issues. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and this paper helps us to continue to grapple with it. And so I'll thank you again for doing the work and for publishing it and, and for spending the time with me talking about it, because you know, I certainly hope it does you know, stimulate others to keep it on the front of their desk and those who have some capacity to make change to continue to figure out how to do so rather than waiting to be forced, as you alluded to. Thank you so much, Kevin. Really appreciate the opportunity to talk about it. And hopefully there's listeners that think, you know what, I actually might have a think about what we do in our teaching. Because I do think, although I've used the case of, of pharmacy education, I do think that it is applicable across the health professions. Agreed. And I have the same hope. So for those who are interested, and, and I hope it's many of you, again, you'll find the paper in the June 2023 issue of Medical Education under the title Hetero and Cisnormativity, UK Pharmacy Education as a Queer Opponent. Andrew Maudsley and Sarah Willis are the authors. Thanks again, Andrew, and I hope you're able to get some rest now after a very long day. Thanks, Kevin. You too.